Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, there is a uh, website where they, they keep track of TV and movie tropes, which are things that you see often in uh, TV and movies, like little patterns that repeat themselves. And one of them is the image, a lot of animation of a, of a it's in commercials, it's in lots of, you'll, you'll, you'll understand in a second, I guess I should keep, keep telling you what it is, but the image of an angel and a demon on someone's shoulders. And we have an example, I'd like to show you a couple pictures here. So this is Tom and Jerry, and this is where I first remember seeing, this is like the movie version of Tom and Jerry, but I remember seeing this image of the angel and the, and the devil on you know, Tom or Jerry's shoulders. I remember seeing that as a kid. And this is common. We, we've seen this in a lot of different uh, images. Here's an example of Homer Simpson, right? He's got one too, and he's trying to figure out which one he's going to listen to. And then one more example, and I want you to leave this one up here for a few minutes. This is uh, the emperor's new groove, and I think his name's Gronk or something. Is that right? I don't know. Anyway, but he's, he's trying to decide what is he going to do. So let's talk about this image for a few moments. Now, this, this is in lots of TV, lots of movies, and it's something that I don't think any of us looks at this and goes, I, I cannot fathom what is happening there in that, in that picture. What is he, you mean he's struggling between doing the right thing and the wrong thing? I can't relate. Uh, what is that like? You know, all of us get it. We get the image um, pretty quickly and we understand and we relate to it. This is where, you know, this, the better nature and the, the, the bad nature is battling over the decision to be made. There is a moral dilemma, and the character is trying to decide, do I do the right thing? Do I do the wrong thing? We understand this image. We understand this concept. It's not super biblical, and we'll talk about why that is in a few moments, but we get the, the image here. There is a battle that we find ourselves in, and so we can relate to this picture, even though we've never had this actual experience. I don't know if any of you have had the actual experience of a small version of yourself appearing on one of your shoulders, um, but we, we get it. And the other thing that is about this picture that I want you to notice is that they're both him, right? We see that they're, it's not like some person that he doesn't recognize, it's him, they're, they're in miniature form, a bad version and a good version appearing on his shoulders. They look just like him, and they represent this kind of duality, this battle between good and evil that we can definitely relate to. Okay, we can take that picture down. The Apostle Paul, we're in Romans chapter 7 this morning. We're going to finish up Romans chapter 7, and you're in for a treat for the next few weeks because we're going to spend as a church... Um, three weeks in Romans chapter 8, which is one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible, and that really reveals how we win in this battle between good and evil. It lays out the roadmap for us of how we live our lives um, on this side of eternity in the battle between the flesh and the spirit. We can relate to this image because we can relate to this idea of wanting to do the right thing and feeling like too often we end up doing the wrong thing. There's this desire and this battle that Paul will describe as a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Our old nature and who we truly are, our real nature in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, Scripture teaches us that we are made new. We're given a fresh start. We're given a clean slate. We, it's like we died with Christ on the cross. And when Christ was raised up to new life, so were we. And so there's this new nature, a new spirit. God puts his Holy Spirit within us. And there's this desire to, to live in a way that honors God. 
but we're, we still feel the battle. We still feel the tug of war between the good and the evil, between our flesh and our spirit. And Paul has been teaching in this letter to the book of Romans that we've been looking at all summer together as a church. Um, he's been talking about this idea of what, what is this sin problem? How do we deal with this? How, how deep does it go? And then how do we find freedom from it? So Paul's been walking through in this very deep way in chapters one through six and the first part of chapter seven about our need for a savior, that all of humanity has fallen in a need of salvation and that we have this sin dynamic and this battle that takes place here and we need to be redeemed, we need to be rescued. And then he says it's through justification by faith. This is what Jesus came to do. He made us right before him because of his sacrifice for us on the cross. And we accept it not because we're, we're good enough to earn it. It's an absolute gift. It's by grace through faith. We simply trust in God. But then the question is, how do you live out this new reality? And if justification by grace through faith is, the, is true, what do we do about sin? Is sin an issue anymore? And what about God's law? He's speaking to this church that's sort of divided between the Jewish and the non-Jewish believers in this church. How does God's law fit into this picture? How does the nation of Israel fit into this picture? And this is where he's going in um, where we've been the last couple weeks, where we're going today, and then in coming weeks as well. So today we're in Romans chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 13 to 25. So go ahead and prepare for that if you're not ready for that. I love, I love it when you read along um, from something in front of you, because I think that helps you, but we also have it on the screen behind me as well. But we're going to read Romans 7, verses 13 to 25. And we, we ended with 13, but we're going to start with, with 13. Um, we ended last week with, with verse 13, but let's read it again. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, Now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So last week, Paul was answering this question, is the law sinful? He seems like if you've been reading Romans chapters 1 through 6, that Paul might have a negative impression on the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, all of these things, the commands that Israel were given about how to worship God and how they should live as a nation. And and, and Paul's saying, that can't save you. You You need the grace of God to save you. So then, Paul, do you think the law is bad? And then he's just been answering that question in the first part of 
uh, Romans chapter 7, which we talked about last week. No, it's very good, but the law causes a reaction in me. The law reveals sin in me. In some ways, because we're so sinful, it will even stir up sin, not just showing me how sinful I am, but in some ways, when I see what God wants, there's a part of me that wants to do the opposite. That's the flesh. It says, it, the law is very good, but without Christ, I am not good. And so there's this dynamic that takes place between the law of God and our sinful nature. In verse 13, it, it's, this is the moment in, uh, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin may be shown to be sin. This is on every episode of Scooby-Doo when the, when the bad guy is unmasked, and it was like, oh, it was you the whole time, and it was, it was all because of, of you kids, you know, that whole thing that happens, um, where sin is shown to be sin. He says the law is good, but sin, it, the law just shows it up. It shines a spotlight on it so that it would be shown to be sin, and then it might be sinful beyond measure. It is Sin is unmasked. And then Paul goes into this dynamic here in, in verses 14 through 20, 22, 23, about this desire within him to want to do the right thing. I want to obey God. I have a genuine desire to live my life in a way that glorifies God, in a way that fits with my new nature. But he says, so often I find myself missing the mark in disobeying what God wants me to do. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I have a genuine desire to obey them. But there's struggle with the ability to obey the commands of God. And then he brings out this, this word. We have the, the flesh. He says in verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin. In the writings of the apostle Paul and in other scriptures, we, we see this dynamic between the flesh and the spirit, this old nature, new nature, and similar to the whole demon and angel on the shoulder, similar idea, but, but there's this battle that takes place within, within the heart of every person between wanting to do the right thing but being too often being tempted to do the wrong thing. And the battle, the word that scripture puts upon that, the part of us that wants to do the wrong thing still is the flesh, and the flesh, by the way, it's this Greek word sarx. It, it, it means it's, it's a physical word. There's this other word carnal that in other translations it gets translated carnal. Um, but it's not our body, but it's within our body. And, and scripture does not teach that your body is bad. It teaches that your flesh is, is fallen, is kind of inclined towards sin, has learned the patterns of sin. There was this heresy during Paul's time and, and later after Paul called Gnosticism, where people believed that our bodies were bad, that anything physical was bad. And that's not what Paul's saying here. But he's saying that there's this battle within our hearts, this part of us that we will struggle with. And it's one of the enemies of our soul. Scripture tells us there's these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that whole system of beliefs around us. It's not the people, but it's the spider web of ideas and concepts that where God has been sort of disinvited to the conversation, from the conversation. It's the, the system of beliefs. And then there's the devil. That, that one's obvious. We understand that one. The actual being, the, the enemy of our souls in that way. But then there's this part of us as well that there's just the flesh that's inclined towards sin that still wants to sin, even though we've been given this new nature and we're set free from slavery to sin. 
Before Christ, there's no choice but to sin. With Christ, we are set free. We are delivered. And so we don't have to choose to sin anymore, but it's still possible for us to sin. In Romans 8, we'll really dive into the details of this battle between the flesh and the spirit and how we can live in a more victorious way, but we'll get, we'll get previews of that this week. I do need to tell you that there is a theological debate in Romans, about Romans 7 amongst a lot of really great Bible scholars. And a lot of people, I think the majority of people will land on the idea that Paul is talking about a current struggle with sin, this desire to do the right thing, but an inability to carry it out in his own power. Some people will say that Paul's talking about before he was a believer, and he's sort of describing, and, and they'll, they'll point to certain parts of Romans 7 that we just read. I land on the idea that Paul is talking about waging this battle between the flesh and the spirit in his own power. And then he shows us the way out of Romans 7 in Romans 8. But I think he's describing something that can be a reality for someone who is a follower of Jesus now, who's been given this new nature. You can live your life in an unsuccessful way as described in Romans 7, but he's showing us how to be out of that in Romans chapter 8. My one caution for saying that Romans 7 is describing a follower of Christ, someone who's currently a follower of Christ, my fear when I say that is that someone might look to Romans 7 as an excuse to wave the white flag. And if you do that, you would be missing the point that Paul is making in Romans 7 and 8. They say, well, Paul, even Paul, Paul's an amazing follower of Jesus, one of the best. He's been, he, you know, wrote, started all these churches, wrote all these letters that are, are part of our scriptures. He, if he, you know, couldn't be successful against sin, as he describes in Romans chapter 7, then what, you know, what good is it for me? I'm just going to surrender. And Paul does not want that for anybody that reads this letter, did, did not want that for the original readers and certainly by extension for us. And he shows us how to get out of Romans 7 in Romans chapter 8. I think one of the realities of, of understanding these dynamics in Romans 7 is that you are not aware of how difficult the struggle is against the flesh until you've really engaged in the battle. That if you've, uh, C.S. Lewis, who's the you know, endlessly quotable C.S. Lewis, and I just quote him all the time, um, is, is, uh, he says this, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. I love that line. No one knows how bad you are until you've tried really hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means, and this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to, to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. Do you understand this point here that Paul, Paul can talk in great depth about how difficult the battle is between the spirit and the flesh because he's been in the battle. He's been trying very hard to be good. 
And he realizes in this battle just how, how broken and how need of, in need of transformation he is and how much he need, needs Jesus. And part of our realization here when we engage in this battle between the flesh and the spirit is that we, we and we're growing and we're really pursuing Christ, we see more the holiness of God, the power of, of God and how good God is. And then when we see the goodness and the brightness and the beauty of Jesus more and more as we grow in our relationship with him, we can't help but see the contrast between our lives and his life. And the more we grow closer to Christ, the, more we, the brighter he is, the brighter he becomes. We see, we beholding his glory. And we see, ah, oh, there's still these areas, these little shadows, you know, parts of my life that don't match this. But it's because we're engaging in the battle and because we're growing closer to him that we even see that, that we even become aware of that. But we see the, the holiness of God. Have you ever um, looked in a mirror or something and it was, it was dark or you didn't see, it was like a tiny mirror, and you, you had like, you thought you looked okay and then you went out and spent the day doing something. And then you eventually go to a bigger mirror and then you see like, oh my goodness, I've got a smudge of something across my face and it's probably been like that all day or I've got something in my nose. That happens sometimes, you know, that I didn't, I didn't see that. And you're, you're, you think about all the, or the things stuck in your teeth and you think about all the things you've done in between there. It's like, I think it's a similar idea with it, with, with, with God. We see our reflection. We see who we are reflected back at us. And because it's so Big, we see these little areas of our life. I've been reading uh, the book um, Jekyll and Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, who's um, most well-known well, for that book, but also the book Treasure Island that he wrote. And in, in that book, Jekyll and Hyde, which I, I was introduced to the story of Jekyll and Hyde um, by the Jerry Lewis uh, movie Nutty Professor, which is not quite the same as the original story. The original story is much darker. It's not about a nerdy you know, professor who becomes this really cool guy named Buddy Love. What kind of name is that? Um, and and uh, the, the original story is about this doctor, right, named Dr. Jekyll, who is a really well-respected person, but becomes troubled by the fact that within him there's a darkness that he knows of. And I, and I think we believe Robert Louis Stevenson was, was at least had a Christian background and was familiar with um, concepts like in, that are on display in Romans chapter 7. And he decides that he's going to give this dark side, in order to kind of emphasize his good side, give this dark side some kind of outlook or outlet. And he comes up with this potion. He develops this potion that once he drinks it, he becomes Edward Hyde. And he's shocked by just how bad his dark side is. You know, he divides himself up between good and bad, and he tries to offset it by doing lots of good. And he tries to hide Edward Hyde, which is where the name comes from, right? But Edward Hyde ends up being far darker than Dr. Jekyll ever realized. And the book is a pretty dark story. It's short. It's only like 80 pages long. It's a novella. Um, but it's, it, it puts on display this kind of idea, the battle between the, the, the good in us and the bad in us. The Apostle Paul, as he is, uh, it, it, when he talks about the gospel in 1 Timothy 1.15, I, I love the way he describes the truth of the gospel. This is going to be on the screen behind me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says, Paul is realizing about himself that he is, he is, he says, I'm the chief of sinners, is another translation of, of this passage. Um, that I, I'm like the leader of all the sinners, which sounds weird because we think Paul's a pretty moral, upstanding person, and he was. Like, Paul really did battle against his flesh, and he really did do great things for God, and he really was a person who tried to live in holiness and walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. But he says the, 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 the reality is, is Christ Jesus came into the world and saved sinners, and that's amazing news because I'm a big one, he says. I'm a, I'm a huge sinner. He says, I'm the foremost. And if you know Paul's story, I mean, he was persecuting and even putting to death followers of Christ before he came to Jesus. And he says, I, but he doesn't say I was, he says, I am. I'm the, I'm the chief of the sinners and Christ Jesus came into the world to save us. And that's amazing news because I really needed saving. The issue here that's at core of, of Romans chapter seven, or one of, the, one of the fundamental things for us to understand is that our, our ability to obey the commands of Jesus in our own efforts, with our own efforts, is not an issue of desire, but it is an issue of ability. And our human will is not enough to live the kind of life that Christ is calling us to live. And Paul is at the end of his rope at, by the end of Romans chapter 7 in this description of living your life, trying to, trying to obey God's will, do what God wants us to do. We love him. We want to obey him but we fall short so often. Why is that? He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And if you notice, if you went back and read Romans 7, Paul talks about himself over and over and over again. He says, I and my and me and this battle within me and, and I try to do this, but I can't do this. He's talking about himself. And then by the end of the chapter there, he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And he looks outside of himself. I need a rescuer. I need a deliverer. I need a savior. And then he says, thanks be to God. He begins worshiping. Jesus is the one who enables us to live outside of this Romans 7 way of life. We just sang a song at the beginning of the service. He's our rescuer. We needed to be rescued we needed to be given new life. We needed to be given an ability, an empowering from God's spirit to help us live our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to him. Last Sunday, I used this illustration of an empty glove trying to pick up a water bottle. And I was, I was describing this idea of us trying to obey Jesus, trying to honor him, trying to obey his commands without the empowering that God gives us. Just in our own efforts, we are like a glove without the, the Spirit's power trying to do these things that we cannot do. We can only do those things with this filling of the hand going inside the glove, picking up the water bottle. And that, this, this is our picture of the, of the Christian life. Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to walk according to the Spirit. We need the life of Jesus in us that will help us to live out a life 
that brings honor and glory to God. And sometimes I wish that my sermons, like, you know how in the newspaper there's little corrections, and I've mentioned this before, I wish I could do that with my sermons. They're like, I said this the wrong way in my sermon, and I wish I wouldn't have said it that way. I don't ever get to, to do that, except I'm going to do it right now um, in, in this week's sermon. But I said, I said a couple of things. Well, a few weeks ago, I, I said that uh, Chrysler was a part of GM. Big mistake. That was in an illustration. Chrysler's not a part of GM. And so the four of you that uh, noticed that I said that wrong, if I would have said Cadillac, the illustration would have been correct. But I said Chrysler. Anyway, thanks. Yeah. Um, so then another thing I said last week, I was talking about we don't obey God in order, we don't obey the commands of Jesus in order to please God. And what I, this was, I didn't say that the way I wanted to say that last week. What I meant to say was this idea that when Christ, when God looks at us, our, our track record does not change how God sees us. We do want to please God, but it's not the sense where we're changing God's perspective on who we are based on our ability to, to check the boxes and to, to measure up to the life he's calling us to live. We do want to please him, but we're not changing God's impression of us. When God looks at us, the good news of the gospel is when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and that is true of us as followers of Christ. And when we want to live our life in a way that honors him, and it, we're trying to live in a way that matches our new reality, our new identity. When we sin, we're acting against who we actually are. We live by grace. We live by faith. We live by the Spirit. We want to abide in Christ because without him, we can do nothing. So the illustration at the beginning of the service of an angel and a devil on either shoulder that looks just like us, the reason why it's not biblical is because in verses 17 and 20 of, of Romans chapter 7, Paul makes a distinction that when I, when I fall short of the, what, what I'm trying to live, the way I'm trying to live, he says, it's not me, but it's the sin in me. I want to reread verse 17 and, and 20. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's saying there's something core at your identity that has changed if you're a follower of Jesus. That it's no longer that old version of you is dead and gone. And now who you truly are at your core is a new creation in Christ Jesus. So if we're going to use this illustration of the shoulder angel and shoulder devil, there's no angel, it's actually just you. And the shoulder devil doesn't bear a resemblance anymore. It looks like the old you. It looks like you before you came to Jesus. And it's not an actual devil, it looks just like you, but it's the old you. And, and so we have to, as we live our lives in submission to Jesus and, and be filling with his spirit and walking according to the, the spirit and not according to the flesh, it's like we're, you know, flicking the little old nature off of our shoulder. And we're saying, I'm going to submit, or the old, yeah, the old nature, I think I said that right. I was like, do I have to issue another correction? I think, I, I think I'm on the right track still. Okay. The truest thing about you, and this is important for us to remember because Satan attacks you at the level of your identity. Anytime you sin, anytime you're walking according to your old fleshly nature instead of this new nature, Satan will try to get you convinced because remember his title and his description, he is the deceiver. He will try to convince you that that's who you are. 
Well, the reason why you sinned is because that's who you are. This sin is core to your identity. And we need to remember this truth, this battle that we are in, that we battle with our mind, Paul says, versus living with our flesh, knowing things about ourselves that who you really are, if you were in Christ, is you are a new creation. The old you died on the cross that day with Jesus. And the new you was raised to life that Sunday morning on Easter Sunday. It's not in charge anymore. So when Satan attacks you at the level of your identity, we, we remember these truths about who we are. Paul said it beautifully in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, I'm going to be, my family and I are going to be going to Washington, D.C. Um, for the first time here in, in a little over a week. We're going to be taking a family trip, and we're going to get to see uh, the Declaration of Independence is one of the things, you know, we're going to be staying at a hotel kind of near all the National Mall and all that stuff, and pretty excited about that trip. But one of the things we'll see is the Declaration of Independence on display wherever it is. I'll figure that out later. But I, um, I did watch the movie National Treasure somewhat recently, and I promised to leave that Declaration of Independence alone. Um, I'll leave it where I found it. Um, but when I think about this, you know, this document's very important in our nation's history. We're, it's part of our founding, and, and, and that we are declaring our independence from, um, from England, and we're saying we are our own country. We're going to be ruled by ourselves, and it's an important part of our history. But for followers of Christ, there's something that's the, really the opposite of Declaration of Independence, which is we need to declare our dependence upon God um, each and every day and throughout the day. And anytime we face a temptation, we make a declaration of dependence. Jesus, we need you to live your life through us. God, help me to face this temptation successfully because I am new in you and your spirit has been given to me. And so I want to walk by faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is true about me is that the old me has died and is buried. And even though I have to deal with this battle between the flesh and the spirit, I'm going to walk successfully with you today. I'm going to battle my sin. I'm going to face temptation the way you face temptation, Jesus. I declare my dependence upon you. When we grow up as, as humans, uh, we require, we're, we're more and more independent, right? We, you, you go from being a baby that can't do anything on your own, needing everything done for you, to as you grow, you become more and more independent. And as you become into adulthood, you need help less and less, and you're independent, and that's a good way to live your life as a human, but it's a bad way to live your life as a follower of Christ. Because Christian maturity is not independence in that way, it's absolute dependence. Christian maturity is depending on God more and more as you grow in your relationship with him, not less and less. And let's ask God right now to help us with that. Lord Jesus, I, I'm... Just so mindful right now that, that, Lord, there's probably many people in the room who feel those dynamics of Romans 7 so personally. I want to do the right thing. I keep doing the wrong thing. 
Lord, I pray that you would help each and every person who's struggling this morning to, um, Lord, find the reality, the truth of, of knowing you to be just so personal for them that they might know you more and more. They might grow in in their relationship with you, Lord. We declare our absolute dependence upon you. We need you. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us to live the kind of lives you're calling us to live. We want to live in a way that matches our new reality. And so, Lord, please help us with that. Help us to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. You are good. You will help us with that. You will empower us. So help us to live our lives in that way. And Lord Jesus, um, I'm, I'm aware as well that we probably, Lord, either watching online or here in this room, not everybody is convinced yet of, uh, or, or has put their faith in you yet. Not everybody's chosen to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody here in this room who needs that fresh start today, who needs to become that new creation. Lord, may you come into their life. May you make yourself known to them in an unmistakable way. Bring them salvation. Bring them that, that, as they're crying out for a deliverer, would you be their deliverer right now? Through your amazing work on the cross, come into their life and change them. Give them new life. Give them your Holy Spirit. Help them to turn from their sins and say yes to you. Lord, you are so good and gracious to offer us life that we might have a life with you, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life... Where, where we don't have to live in this old pattern, this old way of living according to the flesh, but we can walk according to your spirit. And so, Lord, we're so grateful uh, for the ability to have this relationship with you. Help us to praise you the way Paul did. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given us this amazing gift. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.